Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Hello, my name's Lorna Raysalwood. I'm the COO and General Counsel of Harrison Parrot. I'd like to introduce today's guests to you. They are Silvio Pietrosanti, Head of Marketing, PR and Sales at Pentatone. Ben Hogwood, Group Manager, PPL and Neighbouring Rights at Naxos Music Group. And Til Jancikovic, CEO and Founder of Idagio. The subject today is music consumption. How do we consume our music? How is the world around us changing how that consumption happens? Not just technological innovations, but also social changes, and particularly that is relevant at the moment in the current global pandemic. Our panel today are Ben Hogwood from Naxos, who many of you will previously know from PPL as well, Sierva Pietrosanti from Pentatone, until Janchukovic from Idagio. Um, so I'm going to basically ask questions. I'm going to pass over to the panel for discussions and hopefully we can have a reasonably lively debate about where we get our music, how we consume our music and where it's going in the future in this post, hopefully soon, pandemic world. So first question, um, how does the way audiences consume music affect your businesses and what is the link between live and recorded music for you? So passing over, I'm going to start with Ben's looking at me. So Ben, you go first. I think to some extent within classical music, we're fortunate that we have a captive audience and a loyal audience, um, which we found has helped enormously through the years, especially with physical products, but Increasingly with streaming as well, we find that um, classical audiences are, are becoming more turned on to that, um, in a sense. In terms of the link between live and recorded music, I don't find there's as much of a link. I think that's partly because the repertoire is more universal rather than artist-specific. But I do think there's more we could do to, to bring a link between live and um, recorded music. I think we can promote ourselves better in that area. In what way do you think we could promote ourselves better? I think um, I think we do well with things like the Gramophone Awards and particular um, things like that. But um, I think new uh, new album releases we could promote better, especially online. And I think we found in the last six months or so that online has become a, a real go-to area for a lot of people and it's the only place a lot of us can go to to get our live music at the moment and with that we are very close to accessing recorded music too it's it's literally just a click away. Sylvia how do you find that working from the record labels perspective that the um the trends the changing trends of how people consume their music is affecting your world? Yes, well, basically, um, music consumption has uh, changed already in many other uh, genres quite drastically uh, already for quite a while, from uh, physical to download and then streaming. Uh, Classical is uh, catching up, but surely it caught up 
uh, and uh, we see it more and more um, in each of the sales reports and data analysis that we do each month. And uh, of course, it still goes differently in certain uh, regions of the world, like uh, Japan, for instance, is taking longer. But it has uh, hugely impacted how we work as a team because in the recent years, we had to revolutionize ourselves. In, uh, we had to train ourselves, prepare, create the resources available to be able to analyze data and uh, act accordingly. We had to be capable to speak to all the digital providers to like uh, with Idajo, with all the others, Apple Music, Spotify, we needed to be able to have these conversations going and train our artists and managers like you in this regard. So the impact has been tremendous. And the relationship between uh, life and recorded, um, it's much less for us from a record uh, label point of view, is, um, the link is much less now in the sense that before um, uh, people would buy the albums directly at the concert sales. That was the biggest uh, way, the, the, the most direct. You listen, to a, you listen to a concert, you buy the album. And uh, now <laughs> this link is not visible for us anymore. It's not that if someone performs in a, uh, at the Met Opera, we see a huge stream for that artist uh, online. So it's completely um, different. And uh, unless maybe these concerts and life are happening within these uh, um, platforms. So for instance, maybe Till can tell us more later, but if that happens directly in Idajo, then obviously uh, it's just a click away to go to the track of that uh, artist. But then it gives us also a world of opportunities because we are able much more to see what these customers are. Before, we had no idea who would enter to Dusman in Berlin. We had no idea. Uh, how old are they? Uh, what do they like? How, how can we recommend the best? So uh, now it's a completely different uh, world that opened to us because we know exactly where they are, what they stream, what they like, what works and what doesn't. So it's uh, challenges, but a lot of um, opportunities uh, as well. Thanks, Sylvia. And Till, I suppose, logically coming to you at the other end of the digital innovation scale. So um, how is it affecting, how has changing consumption trends basically driven the, the setting up of your business and where it's going for the future? Uh, let me respond to that or let me try to dig into that from three different perspectives. I mean, you said digital, you said innovation, and I think innovation always has to start with the um, people it is made for. And we are, um, in case of classic music, we're speaking about artists, we're speaking about audiences. Um, so those are the two first points I would like to, to, to elaborate a little bit on. And the, the third part is um, what we are facing since March is this huge um, shift from a, to a totally offline business, I would say over the last decades until um, the shutdown when our classic music ecosystem kind of imploded overnight. So this shift from offline to online, where everybody's now trying to come up with solutions, invent, I think it's an extremely creative period, which unfortunately confirms that creativity and also great art is very often um, a result of big suffering and big problems. 
So this on a, on a, on a high level. So um, if you look at the artists, I think at the very end, it's about two things. Um, what, I, what I can do as an artist, I either, spe I either play and perform for audiences and I do it live and it is about the art, it is about the exchange, it's about what is happening in a concert. There's also a strong communicative element. Um, and the second thing I do, I play in front of microphones because I hope that a recording may either, and I think these years are long, long, long ago, may help me make some money, or that's what it has turned into, help at least um, increase my reach increase my name, make me more famous, reach out to more people. So I think those are the important things from an, from an artist's perspective. And from an audience perspective, I think, um, and we all know that probably, and I've been in the business, I think, for 25 years in the artist management business without ever thinking about what it is really is. And then we were trying to, to think for, for a period of three years. And after three years, I came up with a very simple conclusion. Um, the value proposition, I think, number one, it's an intrinsic one or introvert one. It does something with me as a human being. It allows me, um, I think what's urgently needed these days, it allows me to travel into my inner self. And since I'm a social human being and I'm fascinated, I want to share that with other people. And I'm a social human being, so I want to, to interact. I want to share that. I want to bring in other people. And uh, I think those are the, 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 the important elements. And um, this is, um, I think, what has been gone away in the concert business dramatically. Um, what we knew so far is, and what we were, were, were witnessing over the last um, five to 10 years, I would say, with the audiovisual alone or standalone platforms coming up, that filmed concerts apparently aren't enough because concerts are something that are happening in a venue in a room where you have artists and audiences interacting with each other communicating with each other so we need to come up with online formats with online translations of a concert this is about the video aspect and the other aspect of course and this is where um sylvia and and, and ben of course um this is the world we all know and we're all all coming from of course there's the aspect of recorded music um, and recorded music is either um, background music. I think the Philharmonia Orchestra made research some years ago where they found out that 72% of the use cases are lean back. So I listened to Muti conducting Brahms while uh, cleaning uh, 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 my glasses or whatever. Um, and um, there are also these aspects where proactively sitting down and um, taking time to really maybe even a kind of meditative aspect. And I think those are, this is the landscape we have to look at very carefully and then to see and understand and that what we can do because Idajo is a, is a technology company. We started as a startup. We aren't a startup anymore because the definition of a startup is it's a temporarily organization searching for a um, scalable business model. Um, and this is found, I mean, audio streaming is learned. Um, Spotify is there, um, Apple Music is there. We were the first one in this vertical of classical music. So it's there. Um, but what we have to do is to permanently test, learn, improve. Sylvia, what you said, for example, I think customer data. I mean, there's one of the questions, um, Lorna and Maya, that you sent to, to all of us. Um, what is the role of data? 
I think data is core in any business. Now, what we do in the, in the pandemic, and, and, and then I stop because I, I have the tendency to speak too long about these things, but I'm thinking about nothing else these days. Um, what we all do when the pandemic was coming up, we put our things for free on YouTube. We promote it via Facebook. We promote it via Instagram. What do we do? We deliver customer data to big American platforms. Mm -hmm. So aren't there ways how we can use the art of our artists that we represent either as a manager or as a label or as a catalyst or whatever, aren't there ways to um, use the reach and the fascination of the art to also gain other currencies that may help the entire industry to continue building the business. So those, those are the kind of questions that we are currently looking at. I think that's a really good point about, the, the, about data. I think it's, it's fundamental. And I think, um, I think it would be quite interesting to touch on how, um, and, and please, you know, I mean, just come in and join in with the conversation, I think. Um, how you know, does the data you all collect, do you think it actually has an impact upon how you are shaping the material you are releasing, you are putting out there, the artists you're working with? Does it change? And does it also, um, can you actually manipulate what you're doing to change what people are listening to? Does that, does that work? I think data is... Um one of the most important things in, in what we do at the moment. And certainly I found at PPL, um, the, the slight problem we face with classical music, there are so many ways of describing the same piece. So you have, in some cases, even more than one nickname for one piece of music. Um, so I think searching for the music that you're wanting to hear as a consumer, you want the right version to come back immediately. And certainly complimented Adagio on the uh, search of searching facility of your platform because um, what I was looking for earlier came back to me very quickly and that's still a relatively rare luxury in classical music for us to be able to find immediately what we're looking for and I wondered if I could just touch on we collect a lot of data at Naxos as to how our recordings are performing and we we've noticed in the last few months real sort of change towards more inclusive programming amongst the radio stations where um, certainly women composers and um, less white Western material is now being programmed. And it's a really encouraging trend. We found that some of our back catalogue, um, Coleridge Taylor, for instance, there's a release from 1995 that, had in a sense sunk into the back catalogue, but now it's enjoyed a lot greater profile um, on radio stations. And I think this is a, a trend that we're seeing across classical music is that we're exploring the depth of the repertoire that we have available to us. And is that, do you think that's actually changing people's listening habits? I mean, I certainly get a sense from, from looking at, from knowing sort of working with live artists, what, promoters are looking to book in terms of their widening their range of artists but is that yeah. because you know I mean there's always a danger that is this being driven by what they think people want to hear or is it being driven really by people a younger audience coming in I mean you all have different kind of platforms where you can actually see that the changing um I presume you've got the demographics details as well it'd be really interesting to know a little about that 
Yeah, I mean, what we say, if I jump in here, what we see from our data at the very end, um, there is nothing new. It's the same composers. I mean, we know them all. And I recall a um, very funny quote from a presenter, Lorna, you, uh, you may remember him, René Heinersdorf in Düsseldorf, who was an elder statesman who said, Chill, why didn't Brahms write 20 symphonies? Because this is where I sell the tickets. So, and I think this hasn't changed so much. Um, at the same time, um, we, we, we do know that human beings are motivate, motivated if they get something which are self-similar repetitions. And it has to do with our psychological system. I don't want to dig too deep into this, but the interesting thing is we want what we know, but we also want something which is a little bit new. Um, and I think that's a very interesting thing. And to give you a very concrete example, what we are experimenting with at Idajo is that, for example, somebody who likes Richard Strauss, you could probably offer him the um, uh, uh, concert overture by Szymanowski, because the young Szymanowski was copying Richard Strauss in his early years. And these are the kind of things uh, that are really fun to do um, if you have data who allow for such a function, if you have curators who understand this, and if you have the possibility to mix some kind of technology um, and algorithm-based recommendation with human curation. And I think the elements, and then we see, um, this is also what we see in streaming, um, that um, the serendipity is increasing. Because if I buy an album, I make the decision, I buy this album, I pay the price, I get these 70 minutes of music. But the moment I, I'm subscribing to a service that gives me for $9.99 a month everything, I'm much more likely to maybe also push a button where I would not buy a CD. And I think this is something where technology also comes in and helps hopefully to increase a little bit the scope of repertoire that people are listening to. Sylvia from a, uh, from a label who also um, is siblings with a, another streaming service, um, do you find um, that it's almost um, shaping to a degree, if you like, editorial policy on what artists you're working with? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a very difficult uh, point and we are constantly talking about it whenever we have uh, um, yeah, these kind of choices uh, to make. But uh, for us, basically what we do is that we try to analyze the data in a way that we, we are more um, reactive to it, let's say, at the moment. So, for instance, we have a, a data, which is, for instance, uh, this track somehow got streamed a million of times. Then we try to understand the context in which this happened. So was it picked by a playlist? Why did it happen? And uh, where it, is, it, is this artist's uh, uh, profile uh, very well portrayed in that platform? Why does it happen? So we try to understand the context. And then from that, we retrieve the knowledge to be able next time to predict a similar thing for a similar artist or um, how we would like ideally all our artists to look like. We obviously want all our artists to be beautiful on a stage, on a normal stage of a concert hall, but also equally visible and uh, uh, that presentation as detailed in all the DSPs, in all of them, because uh, we really would like to instruct them and the artist managers to see all of them as little stages where th there is the same importance right now. 
But then when it comes to choose uh, um, what to release or not based on their digital presence, that's we, have, we also want to be very uh, uh, artistically relevant to the industry anyways. So it's very hard for us to say, no, we are not going to release this because the digital presence is not good enough. So we also because this things are changing so quickly that we still want a repertoire that is timeless, that maybe this repertoire will be relevant for a sync deal, will be relevant for radio, will be relevant in 10 years for something that we can't even imagine right now. So we try not to be too strict, but still instructing all our artists and the artist managers to be as good as possible uh, on all these uh, uh, digital platforms. Uh, yeah, and then uh, yeah, of course now the listeners, uh, um, like uh, Till also mentioned, is is more listening to a background music. So it's, it's it, they rely much more on what uh, a curator of a certain uh, platform um, decides, or what an algorithm decides they should listen to because they like. Rachmaninoff, for instance, rather than uh, going to a shop and buying what the composer originally composed, uh, track per track, movement per movement. So, yeah, a lot of things to consider. Do you think there is a danger, all of you? Um, I mean, I know in the pop industry, um, last year, not last year, year before, at um, Reaper Barn Festival in Hamburg, I met um, a guy who just sold his AI business to Warners, um, and it was an A&R AI business basically this this it, it trawled the internet pulled demos of bands looked for similarities and it, it did the job of you know a hundred A&R men in at least sifting through to give people what they thought people wanted to hear more of the same do you think there is a danger with classical music going the same way if we become so data focused and so streaming only focused because obviously we can see that you know playlisting particularly is massively important particularly to um, record labels um, so what do you think about that danger I think the first question I would ask what is the definition of danger um, I recall that in my student years I was writing for Phonoform which is a little German uh, analogy to what is a big gramophone magazine and I made an, I made many interviews and one of the interviews I made with Alfred Brendel and I asked him about concerts, about behavior, about uh, his daughter who was making dance floor music and all that kind of stuff and, um, and I asked him why do you think it's very important for us to democratize classical music and to have everybody to take care that the next generation go, uh, comes to a concert and he said well you know I don't care um, my concerts are sold out and in the, each concert there are at least 5% of people I would like to throw out because they don't know how to behave. So the question is, do we really need to convert everybody on earth into a classic music aficionado? What is the advantage? What's the disadvantage? Um, number two, how was music consumed when the composers whose music we are talking about were living, how was it performed, in what circumstances was it performed, what was the focus of the audiences in the courts when listening to music, what did they do while listening to music. I think it's a fundamental discussion we need here. I mean, we are speaking about an industry which has grown tremendously the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and um, at the same time, yes, of course, I'm deeply convinced that we need classical music. 
I was in Korea and Seoul last year in March, meeting the first artist I ever met, um, that I ever managed, which was, uh, which was Kyung Wa Chung. And Kyung Wa told me that, you know, this is, in this city here, the same applies to China. This is such a competitive, fast, hectic society. People need classical music to calm down. And I'm, I'm a German, you know, Germany had Adorno and Adorno was La Polar. And of course, music can't be used for anything. I think it's good if classical music is being used for something. Why not? I think it helps all of us. So this is um, yeah. my two cents. <laughs> ben, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I am being, I, I, I'd like to say I am, I am wearing my flashing devil horns at this point. I'm being quite deliberately provocative when I say uh, <laughs> there's a danger that music will, uh, will all end up being the same. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that um, people seem to come to classical music from different angles and some are using it, especially in the times we're in now. It's a very useful work aid for people. They will log on to a streaming service and want to find a sort of a, a playlist of piano music that will help them work or something. I'm very interested to see the approach of people like uh, Jess Gillam, I think, has been very interesting in the way she has approached music. She's been very inclusive of pop music, but has made sure that if she's going to put something um, pop-related in, in one of her programmes, that she complements it with a piece of classical music that seems to draw in listeners of all ages. And I think that approach is slightly going towards the, the playlist um, model but at the same time it's encouraging people to go off and discover either within classical music or, or further afield i think that works really well do you think we and need was, to be more imaginative in how how music all of us are programming i do um, and I, I might be slightly naive there in terms of losing audience um but i do think the the radio broadcasters especially could be a lot more imaginative with their their choice of, of music. I think sometimes it's it's pleasantly surprising to see some of the, the composers brought forward, but um, there is so much extremely good music out there that doesn't seem to get heard as often as it should. And I, I don't know why a favourite composer of mine came to mind, which is Borodin. Um, and just thinking of Borodin symphonies, uh, a real loves of mine and I think I'd never get to hear them on the radio at all. Um, just to pick one, one random example really. But Till, you were saying that essentially um, still the majority of what people go for, even when they have the choice of an amazing platform like Adagio, to, to, to find music is they still go for what they know. So how do you actually take um, the new ways of consuming music in digital platforms particularly and how do you actually then bring that new different music to people is it more akin to as Sylvia was talking about earlier the if you like this you might like this the old Amazon model no I think um, that um, it has to do a lot of uh, uh, the way how I do, um, how I pray, how I approach the, 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 the listener. I think this uh, this word of advocacy, um, it comes probably 
basically from the United States, with, with probably being Lenny Bernstein, the protagonist. And then, uh, I mean, if you look at the great communicators now in the United States, there's, there's Tom Hampson who worked with Lenny. There is Yo-Yo Ma who worked with Lenny, uh, uh, MTT. They're all coming from Lenny and they're great advocates. And they also have the tendency, and, 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 and uh, Thomas, he's, he's, he's a missionary to, to bring new music um, uh, to the audiences. But I think it has to come with um, a kind of... Uh, kind of moderation it has to come with a way of storytelling it has to come with a way which is currently not at all visible at idajo it's it's a streaming service i would say with some playlists already with some musicians making recommendation but i think there's much more much more possibility um and and uh, and, and much more space and the moment um and one of my, my my favorite examples i mean if i don't have a clue about classic music and i want to know what's the russian opera i need to hear before i die I want probably Anna Netrebko to explain me, or maybe Valery Gergiev, or maybe I don't know who Petrenko, somebody who I, who I, um, um, who I trust, who, who I like, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of possibility, a lot of um, um, uh, space for new ideas. And the other thing I would, add, we have introduced video into Idajo um, Global Concert Hall, which is a possibility for artists to bring concerts online where we had, um, we are still testing this, but there's big, big, big traction. And I think the moment we start to combine media formats, you can listen to something, you can watch something, you get experiences that allow people not just to be entertained, but also to learn. 48% of people listening to, uh, listening to music, um, uh, to classic music, say they want to learn something about the genre. I don't know if this is the case with rap, I wouldn't say I want to learn something about rap. I just consume it. So I think they're very interesting behaviors and 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 wishes and desires in the audiences that we need to 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 understand, catch up, and and convert into different formats also. So what is the role of the artist in this um, exchange? Because it is becoming, and we know that it's becoming more and more about the artist communicating with their audience and that the new methods of communicating to the audience are direct, be it social media, be it on platforms, be it through live streams, whatever it is. There, what is the role of the artist in what all of you do? Well, I think... That's a funny story. Um, I, I worked with Ronald Wilford, who was, uh, you all know him, but for the listeners, not everybody may know him. He was one of the legendary artist managers who passed away some years. He, the man who was, who was running Columbia Artist Management. And I recall very well that he said, well, my clients are never going to appear on the website of Columbia Artist. And that's very interesting because um, the business of managing a conductor was built by creating how do you say scarcity? The, the, the more somebody isn't available, the more I, I, I want him. Very interesting thing. But that, that changed. And I think um, if you look at these kind of archaic conductors, maestros you couldn't talk to, if you, if you compare them to the young generation of a conductor where you can see them make their, I don't know, workout and gym on Facebook, that's a totally different generation of conductors and I think the skill set of artists has dramatically changed. If you make your, 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 your degree at Juilliard School, you have to moderate your concert and the way you do it flow, flows into the, into, the, uh, uh, into the rating at the end. German music colleges don't know that yet. So I think there is a huge shift and just to be a great artist isn't enough anymore. 
And the examples, like Petrenko, who doesn't like to do interviews, or Arkady Volodos, or there are some others, or Sokolov, who don't do it, are just confirming this as exceptions. Sylvia, from the record label's point of view. Yes, I completely agree. As I said before, I mean, the, the artists really need, uh, they really need to consider their digital presence the same as they would choose uh, a dress to perform at the whatever concert hall they would need to perform. It's, it's, for me, right now, it's, um, it's essential. And um, yeah, they, they need to understand also the data that they themselves are now able to see because the majority of these uh, platforms now provide analytics that the artist is able to to see and to uh, understand so it's um, it's uh, completely <laughs> important that they are able to do that and it will uh, also professionalize our industry as a whole because um, it's extremely important that our sector needs to be on the next level uh, overall and only with the artist being so uh, digitally savvy, uh, this can help. And uh, they have a, a chance that is better than ever because before they needed to rely on the labels, telling them certain things, and now they have this chance themselves. They can see right away in which playlist they're mm, going well, what, what works, what doesn't. So this should be important from us to remember, to remind them, and for artist managers as well to really put it as a priority. Then. <laughs> I think as well, it's very interesting that because social media in the last few months has almost been the only means of performance, it's actually brought out the artists who absolutely have to perform for their existence almost. And I'm thinking of Igor Levitt in particular, who started his um, series of recitals, not just because he, he wanted to give something to people watching, but he actually felt an overwhelming need to express himself and was not able to do that in the concert hall and he chose the, the form that was best for him to do that and it's it's been interesting and extremely helpful as a consumer watching artists do that and I've, I've found myself very grateful for people who've been able to to communicate to us I think when we need it most. I think um Turning to, to the um, kind of, you know, the coronavirus uh, situation, which I think, you know, you've all referenced, I guess, um, clearly, this is going to be one of the, as you said, Till, one of the big seismic shifts in driving change in a far more accelerated way than it would have been in the past. Um, and I mean, we, we all know what the impacts are on musicians and on their livelihoods. I mean, it's just been devastating for uh, culture more generally in the world. Um, and I, you know, I guess, as you said, Till, does something good come out of a terrible period? Um, so do you think that, you know, for example, the ability for people to think more in a, a, in a 360 way about how they present their work is going to change forever, how live music and recorded music fits together. Yeah, I would say there is, first of all, and not only in classical, um, there's a lot of blogs and, and articles written about it already. Uh, also, um, Mark Mulligan of Media Research did post some very, very interesting stuff there. Um, I think we are just witnessing the, um, uh, the, uh, a, a new genre, a new media genre to emerge, which is a 
an online concert, a video concert, which I believe has to be more than just a film concert. Um, and um, I definitely believe it's going to last. Um, you wouldn't ask the question, will the internet go away one day? I think whatever humanity uh, can do, humanity will do in the positive way. And I think, but as a person rather pessimistic, you also on, on, on many other levels. But still, I think it's a big opportunity um, and um, there again, I have to uh, watch a little bit what happens in the concert. And I think um, if, if, if you look at it as, as an experience level, um, yes, as a concert visitor, I listen to the music passively, but I also consume it actively because I'm in the concert and I'm participating through my presence. Now, and this is an element which is totally missing online. I mean, a concert is very much about the togetherness and the social exchange and also feeling other people. I think we all know that um, the most magic moments are if there is a great orchestra or great soloist playing and two and a half thousand people in the hall for two, three seconds don't hear anything because of a pause, which has so much tension, which is, I think, one, one of the most magic moments um, in classical music, the silence which is a counterpoint to the music, the silence, when you can feel it physically. Um, this is a great thing. But the question is, how do I translate that online? And I think we may have to look at gaming. We may have to look at social media channels. We may have to, nobody will reinvent the wheel, but there may be people who would put different parts of wheels together in a new way. And uh, this, I think, is a very interesting way. I mean, what we do, a little example of what we started at the Global Concert Hall as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a beginning. First of all, it's live. Number two, it has a kind of Snapchat character. It's only there for 24 hours. So you can make a mistake. You can fail, but you, you feel the adrenaline as the artist. At the same time, the artist is moderating the concert. At the same time, after the concert, it's a kind of virtual green room okay. where audiences can ask artists questions. And um, there is a phenomenon through an online format, it can get much closer to an artist than in the concert hall. Because uh, nobody, except maybe uh, some managers and, 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 and people from the business, would ever go to the green room. And I think this proximity, this belonging, this interaction also between artists and audiences that are being connected maybe through an online format is a very fascinating element. Sergio, what, what's your view about the, um, you know, the future of uh, live streaming and the, the way that COVID is impacting consumption? Yeah, I'm, I think similarly uh, until, and I also have to say that indeed this COVID situation accelerated uh, something that was happening already and maybe uh, artists uh, that were a little bit shy before or didn't trust, I saw them in our own opening up opening up their homes. I mean, at the beginning, we saw a lot of artists simply shooting so many homemade videos, uh, you know, to really let the audience into their heart, into their home. What's wit was warm, was something warm that uh, otherwise social media doesn't have. Now also that is becoming more professionalized. You don't see anymore so many homemade videos, but you see a little bit more professional um, made. But it means it's the direction 
we want to go. Basically, at the heart of all this, there is that we want to listen to what the artist is telling us. We want to enter their world and not only uh, listen to some tracks. We want uh, maybe them to make a playlist that we want to listen, but we also want to know why is this playlist being made. By, by them. So at the end, yeah, it's all what we all do. The artist is at the center of all our professions. And this is just making it uh, differently, and, uh, but definitely in a direction that by being distant is making us closer, weirdly enough. That's interesting you say that because I, I think that's exactly what happened when the Wigmore Hall came back in June. And we had all, I know I had missed it greatly as I was a, a regular there every Monday lunchtime um, and just for that one hour when Stephen Huff came back and was playing it suddenly felt as if you'd been brought together with like-minded people and friends who you knew might be listening and um, like a sort of an advanced version of radio really and to actually be able to see the hall um, and the the music being played I found that extremely moving and in a strange way, it's one of the most moving concerts that I've never been to. It was difficult to put it into words, but I think everyone agreed, talking about it afterwards, that it was quite a landmark moment and it gave us a lot of hope, I think. So I'm going to wrap things up now. Um, so what is it that you think is going to be the thing that will change how we consume music in the future? What, what is going to be driving that change going forward post-pandemic? That's, you know, in two years' time, fingers crossed, we are out the other side of the worst of all of this. We all know that the world will look very different, particularly in the cultural sector, from a sheer fact that we know in the UK, a third of musicians are saying they are going to get out of the profession um, because they can't afford to do it. Cultural institutions, you know, their, their funding will be massively impacted. So what is it you think we're going to end up with at the end of all of this? Well, maybe um, taking up on something that, uh, 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 that Sylvia said and also taking up on something um, what uh, Ben uh, Klaus Heimann of Naxos once said, I think the big problem is that the only business model in music is probably piano recital, end of quote. An orchestra isn't a business model. This is what Klaus Heimann said. It's remarkable. It's unfortunately very, very true. Number one. And number two, Sylvia, you said why. Ask people want to understand the why. And I believe that we are uh, ending up in a situation where gatekeepers are going to lose power. I think that the entrepreneurial drive, the need to survive, to, the need to come up with new things will um, bring up results from very, very creative and highly gifted group of artists that we all have the privilege to work with, will produce new formats. I also would believe that the entire um, business is probably shrinking. Um, I don't say it's good. I don't say it's bad. I just think this is going to happen. I think that when, I think in 2010 or 2011, there was this volcano where we couldn't fly for three or four, or four months. Uh, Norman LeBrecht wrote, London can easily survive for 10 years without listening to an Australian symphony orchestra. 
Um, I think the translation of this is end of quote, but I think the overall touring business will shrink. And I think that we will witness a very, very strong um, raise of local artists and localization. And I think this is a very good thing because you could also say that globalization, for example, a conductor having three orchestras in three uh, parts of the world kind of... Uh, mainstreamed or streamlined uh, uh, the color of an orchestra, the way of phrasing. And we very often see this phenomenon where you have the Munich Philharmonic with Schillerbidake or, or Simon with, 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 with Birmingham or, I don't know, uh, Theodor Kurenzis with his orchestra in, 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 in Russia. The more artistic entities are a little bit cut off from the world, the more individualism they are producing. That's a very difficult question to answer that, to project where we might be in two years' time. Um, but I think one thing I have noticed um, over the last few months, because I think we've all been experiencing higher levels of stress, and I find a lot of people have said to me that classical music has helped greatly uh, in distilling that and sort of diluting that stress. And I think there's a, a real potential for us to, to bring classical music forward. Um, and to, to bring more people into it. And I think what Phil was saying about um, concerts becoming more local, I certainly see that happening. And I think that could be a very good thing and bring classical music into areas where it is not always seen. Um, and I think that would be very greatly appreciated. Yeah, I also found that point about localization very interesting. And um, <clears throat> I think that I, I think that the artists indeed will take much more charge on many other things that right now are being dispersed on uh, several other um, uh, institutions or uh, individuals and uh, will need to take charge of its own artistic life, collaborations, and will come maybe from a direct interaction with the public much more. Thank you to our guests, Till, Sylvia and Ben. And thank you also to our producer, Maya Wojniak and sound editor, Merlin Thomas. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Culture Bar and we'd love to know what you think of our series. So please do leave a rating or review. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you again soon. Mm -hmm.